For those that remain then in the auditorium, please take your Bibles, if you would, James chapter 2, James chapter 2, and this morning it is our intention to look at verses 14 through 26, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Do you know anybody who's mostly all talk? Maybe it's you and nobody's told you yet. I think we've all interacted with people in our workplace, in our families, in our communities that talk a good game. If you have a story, they've got a better one. If you have an accomplishment, they've done something even greater. No matter what the topic or the subject, they're an expert in it, according to their own perspective. And yet, when it really comes down to it, their walk doesn't match their talk. They can't back up what they have said. I remember when I was in elementary school in Nova Scotia, I don't know if it was just my rampant imagination or if I was under the influence of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or what was going on at the time, but I started a rumor that I had a black belt in karate. I told all of my fellow students, watch out, because I got a black belt in karate. Surprisingly, that ruse lasted longer than it should have, because what would your first question be if somebody who's age 10 tells you that they have a black belt in karate? Prove it. And unfortunately for me, that day came. And of course, I tried weekly to imitate something I had seen Leonardo or Donatello do on TV, or even though we didn't have one growing up, so I must have seen it somewhere, and uh, it was to no avail. So that is the question, is it not? People say I am this, or I can do this, or I have this kind of knowledge or this skill set. Prove it. We don't want to know what you tell us you know. We want you to show us what you know. And that is on full display here in our passage before us this morning. James is not impressed with our confessions or lack thereof. James want to see, wants to see action. And I wonder, this is speculation on my part, but I wonder if some of that does not come from his own past. We believe, as we said in the first sermon in the book of James, that this James, there are four in the New Testament, and the most likely candidate for the author of this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus, shared a mother, did not share a father because Jesus is virgin-born, grew up with Jesus, same home as Jesus, as I mentioned in that very first sermon, be very difficult to be Jesus' brother, never was disciplined, if something went down, it was always your fault. It was never his. He was perfect. And we know from John's gospel that James and the other brothers of Jesus do not believe that he is who he says he is. Would you? Your brother announces, I'm the son of God. <laughs> yeah, right. But James knows that he sat idly by as his brother was crucified. James is aware that he said nothing in his brother's defense. And James is aware that he, along with all the other disciples of Jesus, abandoned him in his hour of, of greatest need. And now, 
post-resurrection and ascension, James has come to believe that Jesus is who he actually said he is, and of all people whose word we should probably go with, it was someone who grew up with Jesus, James calls himself, as he opens this letter, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And he has no time for just words. There's gotta be action. Because he realizes he has a lot of lost time to make up for. He should have believed his brother was who he said he was. He should have believed the words of his brother and the actions of his brother and the character of his brother. He did not. Now he does and he wants everybody else to join him in that. And he's not concerned primarily with what you say, but what James is concerned with is what you do. And is that we want to turn our attention to in the passage before us. So follow along with me if you would. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have a faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. And so we begin this morning with our first point that belief is active. Belief is active. As I mentioned, Jeff Christofferson, the president of CNBC, made this quote, and I was at a CNBC conference last fall, belief is a verb but not a noun. And that's stuck with me ever since. Belief is a verb, not a noun. I think we can slide into the error that James is trying to correct in his audience in that we have a statement of faith, a written set of, doc, of doctrines that we adhere to. We have that on our website. We have that in our minds. We believe ourselves to be orthodox, and on paper, we are. But then we begin to pride ourselves on our orthodoxy in what we say we believe, and we fail to recognize that it's not quite matching up with how we behave. Our day-to-day -day lives are not based on the things that we say we believe. There's a gap. Belief is not dictating behavior. And so our beliefs are nouns. They are a set of propositional truth statements, but they are not actions. And James says that type of belief is useless. There's a number of verses in this passage. You can't get away from this. James is just shouting that, this at us throughout this passage. There's a number of verses where he brings this out. There's at least three different takes on it. 
So notice in verse 14, he says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James's first point in belief is active is to merely use words without backing that up with action is useless. It's, it's not profitable. If someone says, hey, I can loan you a million bucks, that's fantastic, please do. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have any money. What good, is, what good is saying something? What good, is, what good are platitudes? What good is it to slap somebody in the back and say, hey, praying for you, if there's not any follow-up action? In particular, actually praying for that person. How often do we say, as I'm, say I'm praying for you, and we never do? I've changed my approach. Somebody comes to me now and says, look, I can really use prayer for this. I try, not always, but I try to stop right there. Let's pray right now. Prayer is the best thing we can do for someone else. But how often do we say we're going to do it and then we don't? We can put different uh, avatars and different things up on our social media accounts. We can do all kinds of stuff that's actually essentially useless. It's just words and empty words at that. We'll dig into this in a little bit, a little bit deeper, but James says that type of faith is useless. It doesn't, it doesn't save, it doesn't help, it doesn't profit, there's no gain there. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James's point is faith and works are two separate things, but they're not distinct from each other in the sense that they can fully operate apart from one another. We have a physical body, a material part of ourselves, but also an immaterial part of ourselves, a soul, a spirit, there's an immaterial part of us. There's a difference between a body in a coffin or casket that does not have a soul or spirit in it, is not animated, by life, and a body that does. And you can't really have one without the other. Faith and works go hand in hand. They're, they can't really be evidenced apart from each other. You can do good works, but without faith, good works on their own are useless. And there's a lot of people trying this. If my good works outweigh my bad, maybe it'll be okay. I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna do more. James would say, as well as Paul, that's useless. That, that, that doesn't work. But James's point is different, where he says, yes, but you can say then that you have faith. But if you say you believe that God is sovereign, if you say that you believe that you are unworthy and undeserving of salvation, and it is only by God's grace that you are his child, and that you don't show humility, you don't evidence forgiveness for others even though you've been forgiven, you withhold kindness from people even though God has been so overwhelmingly kind to you, when you treat others differently depending on their social status and what they can do for you, which is what Pastor Luke preached to us last Sunday from this passage, you're betraying the fact that you don't actually believe because your faith is not backed up with action. Unfortunately, the evangelical church in North America for a very long time has adopted this type of presentation of the gospel. 
What's required of someone then to come to faith in Christ? Well, just say these words. Maybe walk an aisle, maybe sign a decision card, but just say these words, a set of words, just say them, and then you're good. You're good to go. And it is true for Romans 10 that with the mouth we confess that Jesus is Lord, but that confession, if it is real, evidences itself in action. You cannot be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) David Platt in one of his books says, if we were supposed to meet for lunch and then I walked up casually and sat down next to you and says, you'll never guess what happened. Like, no, please, tell me. You're at least an hour late for our prearranged time to meet. Man, I was crossing the street just over there, and I was on my way. I was going to be on time to meet you, and I got hit by a transport truck. The grill just smucked me head on. Unbelievable. So I kind of dusted myself off, made my way here. No adverse effects. Clothing is fine. Everything's fine. You would rightly question my story. And yet, David says, we've been hit by the Mack truck of the gospel, and it doesn't do anything for us? It doesn't change us at all? It's not transforming how we think, how we live? James's point is mere words and mere assent to a set of propositional truth statements is not the same as actual faith. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But also, lastly in verse 24, it is vindication. You see, James says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, actually, if I actually had a black belt in karate and somebody said, prove it, I would have been able to. And my actions would have justified, would have proved, would have validated the time that I had spent actually getting a black belt in karate. I had a black belt in lying, but not a black belt in karate. And so it's useless, this type of faith. It's not actual faith because it's not combined with action as a body that does not have a soul and a spirit is dead. It it can't work. And it's not validated. It's not true to say that you believe these things and not have them impact how you think, respond, act, speak, behave. So belief is active. Belief is a verb, not a noun. Now what James is going to do is he's going to give us four different ways of proving this. He's going to start with two inactions that evidence unbelief, and then he's going to give us two actions that evidence belief. And the two inactions are towards our fellow human beings and towards God, and the two actions are towards God and to our fellow human beings. So look, if you would, in the second place, inaction evidences unbelief. James is is going to do what he has proposed as his argument. If you say you have faith, back it up with your works. So James is going to do that. If that's my argument, that's the proposition I'm setting forth, let me prove it. And so, verses 14 through 19. Notice, if there is inaction towards our fellow humans, it evidences unbelief, not belief. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, may God go with you and warm you and clothe you and fill you 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, you ever struck sometimes by scripture just makes a whole lot of sense? Like, duh. And yet we look at this passage and we wonder how often we don't get it. We don't live this out. How often do we have our platitudes, our wishes of warmth and God's blessing, substitute, become a religious veneer over our inaction? Someone, especially, according to Paul, the household of faith, a brother or sister in Christ is in need. We're aware of the need, and we can help with the need. But to avoid helping with the need, we serve up some good words. Hey, praying for you. Hope God helps you work that out. And then immediately go on with our day, our stuff, our focus, and completely forget about somebody else. And James asked a very obvious, like blatantly, glaringly obvious question, well, what good is that? How does it make any sense to say that we're part of a family here at Grace, we love one another and support one another and care for one another, and then someone actually has a need, and a need that we can fulfill, and we ignore it. And worse, we actually try to show that we do care by saying some good words And then that sort of solves solves our conscience, but does nothing for the person who's in need. And let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're not in need, buckle up, because there's coming a time when you will be. There are times when we are the ones who give, and there are times when we are the ones who receive. None of us is above needing help. That's kind of the whole point. And so one of the commentators said there was a story where a itinerant pastor driving on his horse, the horse, uh, one of the legs went in a hole and was injured, went down. And so the pastor's there sitting by his horse, his horse is injured, and the crowd gathers, and there's all the sort of standard, oh, I'm so sorry, that's, are you okay, what's going on? And another pastor from town comes up and says, I love this brother five pounds. Five dollars, fifty dollars, whatever. How much do you love this brother? It's not to say that simply giving money is the only way we show love, but it is to say withholding our money is unloving. How is it that we say we love God, we love the church, we love his people, we love all the things that Grace Baptist does for us, it ministers to us and to our children and our grandchildren. We love the men's ministry and the women's ministry and the couple's ministry, and we love the theology forums, and we love the Sunday morning services, we love the music, we love all of these things, and we can sit here Sunday in and Sunday out and not give a dime. Now it's not just a matter of money. But it is to say, where is our heart? And our heart is where our treasure is. And so James is not impressed with words. James is not impressed with how you want other people to see you. James is not impressed with your reputation. James wants to know, as does the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, 
Who are you actually, and what is it that you actually believe, and what is it then that you are doing? How are you evidencing the things that you say you believe? God is the most important thing in my life. Prove it. Does it impact how you live? Does it impact how you speak? Does it impact how you spend your money or not? Does it impact your lifestyle? If God was removed from your life tomorrow, would it look any different? James says this type of faith is useless. But what about inaction then towards God? Because James says, well, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So James, in good rhetorical fashion, says, okay, somebody's gonna come along and say, hey, James, whoa, easy, time out. Treading on my toes, man. Listen, you have faith. That's a gift from God. It's one of the spiritual gifts that you have. And there's just people that have more faith. They just believe when times are tough and thank God for them in the church. And I have works. I'm more of an activist Christian. I'm more of a doer. And so James, you're incorrect to jam those things together and say that they need to work in conjunction with each other. They're two separate things. And it's interesting because you would think the argument would be, I have works and, and, and you have faith, but it's actually the reverse. So what does James say? Show me your faith apart from your works, rhetorically saying, that's impossible, and I will show you my faith by my works. I say I believe in God, and I back that up with how I live, and how I speak, and how I behave, and how I think. And then he really brings it home, and what's fascinating is we've already read this passage, Deuteronomy 6.4. He says, you believe that God is one. That's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is a statement of theological fact. God is a triunity, three in one. He is supreme, he is sovereign, he is creator of all. What does James say? You believe that. He's writing to Jewish Christians. Of course they believe that. They've heard the Shema since the time that they could hear words and understand them. Every Jewish person knows the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everybody knows that. That's one of the most famous verses in in the Old Testament. He says, even the demons believe. But what is the demons' response? They shudder. They say they believe that God is one. They say they believe that God is superior, supreme, sovereign, creator of all, and judge of all. They say they believe that, but what is their response to that? The response to that is fear, not submission. See, if you actually believed that God was sovereign over all things, if you actually believed that one day you were gonna stand before him and give an account, if you actually believed that he is holy, 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 and you are not, if you actually believed that he was going to judge you and find you wanting, your response would be, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You would run to him, not away. But what do the demons believe? They believe as a propositional truth statement that there is a God They believe that. 
but they don't actually believe the full implications of it. Because in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is it immediately followed by? Love the Lord your God. What is the actual, only appropriate response to someone who actually believes that God is who he says he is? Repent, believe, love, follow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the response to somebody who actually believes Deuteronomy 6.4. Luke and I were talking on Fridays as we do, the sermon preview, and it fascinated me as we went through the book of Joshua, the sheer amount of people who said they believed that God was who he said he was, and also simultaneously believed they could defeat him. It's fascinating. Jericho, according to Rahab, which we're going to meet in just a moment, or re-meet in just a moment according to James, says in Joshua 2, listen guys, the two spies, we are sitting here behind our walls, walls so thick that two chariots can pass each other on top of them. We're sitting behind our walls in this walled city and our hearts are melted within us. We know the God you serve. He parted the Red Sea, 10 plagues over Egypt. He's now part of the Jordan. We know who this God is and we're all afraid. How afraid are you actually? Because if your response was to that actual belief that God was who he said he was, walled cities are nothing to this God, as Jericho is just about to find out. So what does Rahab say? She actually believes. You can't fight against this God. You can't stand against this God. You can't resist this God. There's only one response if you actually believe. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cry out to him and say, my only hope is that you will have mercy on me. My only hope is that you look upon me with favor. I need to run to you, not away. Repeatedly throughout the book of Joshua, five kings get together. This will defeat the nation of Israel. And then they lose. You know what the problem was? We needed one more guy. So we'll get six of us together. That'll work this time. It's just, and then you come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and what does it repeatedly say in the Revelation? What is the response of the unbeliever they try to hide from God. They go into the caves and they say to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from this God. This God who just wiped out a third of the world's population. This God who is doing acts that no one else can do. And we think, I know what, I know what we should do. Here's a good plan. We'll go to a cave. He won't find us there. Again, it just brings a smile to my face. What was the Pharisees' plan for the individual who can raise people back to life from the dead. Let's kill him. <laughs> this Lazarus guy is dangerous because he's going around telling people that he just raised them back to life from the dead. I don't want to, we'll kill him. And the one who raised them back from life from the dead, we'll kill him too, that'll take care of it. If you actually believe God is who he says he is, you bow in humble submission. It's the only, it's the only response. So James says, you have a lot of words, but your actions aren't matching those words. You're not actually believing. So your inaction towards God proves actually unbelief. You've got a great statement of faith. You've got a great set of propositional truth statements, but it's not backed up by action. And so action then evidences belief. Action, first of all, towards God. Do you want to be shown, he says, you foolish person? The faith apart from works is useless. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, James does something here that's unique in the New Testament. He's the only one who does this. Paul references this in Romans 4, but references it at the time that it happens. Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. When? Genesis 15. Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and gives him the first uh, uh, iteration of the promise. I'm gonna bless you and make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But Abraham has his doubts. Abraham is given that promise when he's 75. Time has passed. He's questioning. So God comes back in Genesis 15 and says, Abraham, I made that promise and I'm as good as my word because I'm a promise making and a promise keeping God. I never let you down. I will give you a son. He says, Abraham, come out with me and look up at the stars. Look up at the sky. And not in the middle of the city where you only see five stars and two of them are airplanes. Come out with me to the desert. Look up into the night sky and see all the stars. And Abraham, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you through a son from you and Sarah. And at that moment, what does it say? Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. That is a legal justification. He believed that God, what God said was true, and that belief was counted him for righteousness. But what, what passage does James use to prove that Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness? Not all the way until Genesis 22. So 25 years pass from the time the promise is given to the time that the son is given. Abraham waited 25 years. He's 100, Sarah's 90. Then he gives given a son. Subsequent to that, when Isaac's old enough to walk by himself and carry a load of sticks to go to the altar to be sacrificed, so 25 years plus that amount, God comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice your son. You said you believed me in Genesis 15. Do you actually believe me? Now it's Genesis 22. And what does Abraham say? He says to the other servants, stay here and we will go, we will sacrifice and we will return. Three times use the word we, meaning he and Isaac are coming back. And in Hebrews 11, which we just went through not that long ago, it says Abraham believed that God could reanimate Isaac. He could bring him back from the dead. Not only his dead body, but his burned body could be brought back from the dead because Abraham believed God to that extent. Now that's proving by your actions that you believe what you say you believe. Your words match your actions. So James conflates this and says, when Abraham offered Isaac or was willing to offer Isaac all the way in Genesis 22, that proves or vindicates what he said in Genesis 15. Abraham had action towards God. He believed, and 25 or 30 years later, he proved that belief and certainly proved it all the way along. And then it's not just our action then towards God, it's also our action towards our fellow humans. There could not be two more different people than Abraham and Rahab. And James puts the two of them together because both had faith. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So again, you go to Joshua 2, and Rahab says, we know that this God that you guys serve, you can't stand before this God. Walls are no impediment to this God. If the Red Sea does not stop him, 
If the nation of Egypt does not stop him, the waters of the Jordan do not stop him, nothing's going to stop this God. And as we find out, all the nation of Israel does is walk around the city and God takes care of the walls. Nothing can stand before this God. But the difference between Rahab and everybody else in the city of Jericho is that she actually believes that statement. So what does she do? She takes in the two spies. That's an act of treason. She's discovered she will lose her life because she's betrayed her city. But she takes in these two spies, she hides them, and then she lies, and we can get into that later, maybe during the Q&A, sends the soldiers out on a wild goose chase as the two spies are hidden at her home, and then she lets them down on the wall and says, I ask you one thing, when you come back, remember me. And the two spies says, anybody that's in your house, they'll be saved. But if they're not in their house, they won't be saved. Their blood is on their hands. Who believed that God was who he said he was? Who believed that God was as powerful as he proved himself to be? Who actually believed that? Rahab did. And she proved it by how she treated the two spies. She proved it by her actions. She could have been caught for treason. Her life was on the line. But she believed more in the power of God than the power of the, her deities or her walled city to save her. And so what is the response from us this morning? Do we act like who we say we are? That's what James is concerned with. He's not battling Paul with faith and works. Paul's particular struggle is individuals that think that their works save them apart from faith. James's audience is thinking that their faith saves them apart from works. Both Paul and James are on the same page to say faith and works must be in concert with one another. As a body needs a spirit to be alive, so faith needs works. Works apart from faith are useless, but faith apart from works are equally useless. We need to, quote unquote, put our money where our mouth is. Do we actually believe what we say we do? Do we actually value God and his word and this assembly and the spread of his gospel around the globe? Do we actually value our fellow human beings? Do we actually believe that we are not superior to them, but we are simply sinners who have been saved by an all-gracious savior and that they need the same message? Do we actually not treat people partially as we saw last week? Do we actually hold our tongue as we're going to see in chapter 3? So if you think your toes have been stepped on this morning, buckle up. They're going to get more sore. <laughs> Do we actually believe and does it show in our response to the world around us? Do we know that we are simply strangers and pilgrims just a passing through? Martin Luther, in his preface to his commentary on Romans, says this. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. 
It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. James says, the type of faith that is all words and no action, the type of faith that says it has a black belt in kindness or a black belt in forgiveness or a black belt in doing things for others, but does not back it up, does not have any reality, is useless. That type of faith cannot save. If Jesus Christ has saved you, if he's met you, stopped you in your tracks, revealed to you who you actually are, not who you're trying to portray yourself to be to everyone, you're never the same. Not all of our conversion stories are as dramatic as Paul's, but Paul was going this way, and when Jesus met him, he started going that way, and that's the definition of repentance. You may not be who you want to be, and none of us are, but you certainly are not who you used to be if you now know Jesus. Nobody that has a relationship with Jesus is ever the same. And that's what James wants to draw our attention to. It's not just what we say. It has to be what we do. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is honest and clear, blunt, bold, and direct. And thank you for this servant of yours, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who spent the first part of his life not believing that Jesus was who he said he was, who did nothing as his brother was cruelly mocked, beaten, scoffed at, spit upon, and crucified. But then James truly knew his half-brother Jesus, saw him for who he was and saw himself for who he was and realized that he was a sinner in need of a savior. And that savior was none other than his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. So James is not interested in words. James is not interested in platitudes. He's not interested in lengthy, uh, lengthy statements of faith. He's not primarily uh, interested in creeds and confessions. None of those things are bad. Those are very, very good things. But what James is interested in is, does our belief match our behavior? Does what we say we believe translate into how we act, how we speak, how we think, how we behave, how we treat others, and how we respond to God. Father, may we always bow in humble submission to you, getting to know you more and more each day. And Father, living that out, living out our relationship with you so that all can see and some can come to know you as Savior. There are those 
here in Charlottetown and beyond that do not yet worship you. Father, they need to hit to be introduced to you. And Father, we know you. Help us to do that. Yes, with our words. Words are necessary. But also, Father, with our actions. May it be seen that we are different because we've been with you. As those in the gospel said, they knew that they had been with Jesus. May that be the same of us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.